Welcome to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. I'm here with the amazing Harmon Kandola. Harmon, how are you doing? I'm very excited to be here in the middle of an election to talk politics. In terms of uh, being a political podcast, I think this is like, it's fair to say that these are our Olympics. Uh, absolutely. And we're, we're, we're here to ensure that uh, the sick voice uh, is going to be heard, but also to help ensure that people are well informed of issues that uh, are of a concern. Um, we are going to talk about the World Sick Organization, the Canadian Sick Election Guide, and we're going to go through the top five issues and how we constructed this guide to help sick voters look at what issues are important. But before we go into those individual uh, topics, Armin, what impact do you think sick voters have and why is it important to take a sick lens to voting? You know, to me, I think it's really important that, um, you know, and you've seen this a lot, which is third-party advocacy is so important when it comes to advocating or uh, being able to protect the interests of minority or vulnerable communities. And so, you know, with the guide that actually helps to ensure that, you know, the community asks the right questions, has the context, but also at the same time for political parties to understand the concerns of uh, different communities. So, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to kind of get into the details of the guide and kind of some of the promises that have been made so far in this election. Resettlement of Afghan Sikh and Hindu refugees. If you are a regular listener of our podcast, it will not come as a surprise to you that we put this as the number one topic that Sikh Canadians are talking about and we're looking at in the elections. Uh, the World Sikh Organization, along with the Manmeet Puller Foundation, have been advocating to get Sikh uh, and Hindus in Afghanistan <clears throat> out here to Canada and for them to be safe for over six years, we have been, and thank you to all of you who've helped with the writing letters and the tweets and all of the advocacy. Our Sangat has put forward all of the money and worked on everything on helping folks get here. We just needed to help them get here. In the last little while, we have this, we've seen the situation completely escalate. The United States pulled out of Afghanistan, it created a pathway for the Taliban to take over. And all of a sudden, we hear a complete shift in the way that politicians are talking about sex in Afghanistan and vulnerable populations in Afghanistan. And we hear for the first time that the federal government is willing to resettle 20,000 refugees from Afghanistan. Harman, what do you make of the liberal response to what's happening in Afghanistan now and how this times with the coming up election? You know, I, I don't think it's too dissimilar from the promise that Justin Trudeau had made before the 2015 election to resettle 25,000 Syrians and an election that he went on to win. And similarly, you know, I think that the, the timing, um, while I think appreciated, I, uh, a lot of people were, were excited to hear the news that the government was going to proceed with um, having this this pathway for those from Afghanistan. But at the same time, you know, this was not a pathway that's aimed to help evacuate people who are facing urgent uh, issues. And I think that's the biggest concern. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations have stepped up to help, you know, assist people who want to apply under this pathway. But Given that, you know, the, the immediate concern was with those who were facing the ev evacuation or the ongoing and um, oncoming threat from the Taliban, um, it, it, it was a little bit too, uh, a little bit too late. Uh, and so there is some disappointment with the Canadian government when it comes to, you know, what the Liberals have put forward. But the timing of it, um, I think, mirrors a lot of what we saw in 2015. Uh, and and kind of the liberals trying to go into a into a campaign with a very clear signal of the type of um, government that they wanted to run. Unfortunately, over the past six years, we haven't seen them actually commit to helping those, despite knowing of the threat. And so, you know, from my perspective, there's so much more that we could have done um, and can do. Yeah, there's. Uh, we've asked for this for so long, and. We could see the threat and the danger six years ago, five years ago, four years ago. And I've been listening now, uh, I was listening to Minister Medicino uh, on CBC talk about how they would move 
like heaven and earth to try and get everyone to safety, that they were doing the best that they could, that they were doing absolutely everything they could. And to have been advocating specifically for the safety of Sikhs in Afghanistan for years and to um, be kind of given the runaround, no answers to emails, some answers to emails, meetings that felt tokenistic, silence. And then to hear those folks go on the radio and say, we're doing absolutely everything we can, when that has not been true in the experience of advocating for this issue, it was infuriating. Um, So I think in terms of this being a sick voting issue, it's definitely right up there. It's number one, not just because these are people we know and we're in touch with, but also because this is a real moment for parties to demonstrate what they can do and how they will do it. It's a moment for them to demonstrate their strengths in terms of how they run a bureaucracy. When we were saying and are saying that these will be folks that we bring in here, we will take care of them, we will house them, we will pay for everything, the legal support, the logistical support, we just need that special program from you, we just need your permission to get them here Um, and, like, I, I when I get frustrated, the Punjabi comes out. So like, right? Like everything's like to then experience so many barriers and then for an election to be around the corner and all of a sudden big announcements, big moves, big, big sound bites. We're doing everything we can. This is so important to us. It feels very dishonest and it feels very disheartening. So I think that's my... Um, my take on this in terms of it being a sick voter issue is definitely ask the question every chance you get, um, every candidate, what are, if you're in that position, what are you going to do? So if the liberals go and if the conservatives come in, are you going to continue with this 20,000? Are you going to increase it? How are you going to do it? Are you going to work with the Taliban in Afghanistan? How are you going to ensure? So as of Today, when we're recording this on the 30th, um, some families, uh, there were around 250 uh, folks that were still in Kabul. They, some of them got to India. Some of them were staying at the Gurdwara. There was a tweet this morning that the families at the Gurdwara have dispersed and gone back to their homes because now they don't feel safe in the Gurdwara as well. Some of our folks are still in there. So what do you do? How are you going to resettle the folks that have gotten out? What are you going to do for the folks that are still in there? How are you going to do it? And how is it going to be different than the last six years where we've just been knocking on your doors and not gotten answers? And I, I, you know, going through the conservatives plan, I thought there was something in there which would be of interest to everyone who's been following the Afghan, um, you know, refugee crisis, which is the conservatives have identified an issue that we faced and a lot of people have faced, which is the definition of a refugee. Um, So if somebody, you know, the definition is if you're facing persecution and already left your home country. And unfortunately, that doesn't uh, it, it doesn't uh, address those who are being internally displaced or people who are vulnerable to ongoing persecution, but who have not been able to cross a border. And so that's been a struggle um, for, for many who have been working on the Afghan uh, refugee issue. And, and the conservatives have now kind of put forward that they're going to look to have that definition changed. Um, and, and understand that there's an inadequacy that exists within that international legal definition. Um, that, to me, was kind of an interesting piece that found its way into their uh, platform. But they also had, you know, I, I think a lot of more detailed approaches when it came to um, looking at refugees and, and what their plan was going to be uh, to help those who are, whether human rights defenders, whether people who are facing ongoing persecution, um, but they've clearly um, enunciated a concern that I think a lot of those working on this issue have faced. I think that's such an important distinction too. like the to know um, that you can be a refugee, to know you can be asylum seeking, to know you can be internally displaced. You could have not left the borders of your country at all and still be in a lot of danger, which I think the folks that we're looking at are in a lot of danger and are still in Afghanistan. Um, those are such important distinctions. Canada will throw around stats like uh, I think I once read we Canada resettles one in every 10 refugees. And I thought that's huge. And I was like, wow, good for us. That's incredible. We're taking in one out of every 10 refugees. 
That's not true. Resettling is when, um, so like if our folks get out of Afghanistan and they make it to India, uh, then to keep them there in limbo for years to say, okay, they're safe. They're out of the immediate danger. Now let's put them through this incredibly thorough vetting process. Let's get paperwork on paperwork on paperwork, medicals and references, um, bills and fees, and uh, let's put them through the complete ringer. Some The refugees that are resettled are some of the most thoroughly vetted people that come into Canada. It's a harder path. People think like, oh, refugees jump the line in immigration. Um, all of these are stereotypes that are not true. So it is definitely, I welcome um, looking at those definitions and taking a closer look for sure. And I think that's what makes this an interesting uh, point to look at how the different parties respond to it. Well, you, so you've had the NDP and the Conservatives both understand that administrative backlog is a massive issue. Um, you know, not necessarily addressed uh, particularly at the refugee uh, application process, but in general, um, both of them have highlighted in their platforms that they want to attack the issue of backlog. Um, and I think that's that's something that the community is, is, is concerned about. Uh, and this might go beyond the, the four four walls, um, you know, of our of our document. But you know, having a, a system that addresses the backlog is, is a, you know, is something that would help anybody who's trying to look to come to Canada, including refugees. Um, but the Conservatives also added in the piece of increasing cultural awareness uh, and, and training to, to have applicants match with immigration officers who best understand their cultural, cultural context. You know, it's, it's a great plan in, in principle. I'm really curious how, they, how they're going to go actually proceed with that. But the other nuanced point that they put in was in something that you just touched on is allowing for people to make uh, corrections to honest mistakes. Because when you have this overwhelming amount of paperwork and administrative burden, there's inevitably going to be issues that arise when it comes to filling in this correctly, having the capacity to fill in it correctly, um, and having the ability to actually fix errors um, instead of just having your application rejected would be a a huge, huge um, burden off the shoulders of many people. And the NDP really touched on, you know, talking about the gaps in settlement services. You know, and part of that is regulating consultants, um, but also ensuring that people have supports when they come to Canada. So I, I think there's, there's there's interesting parts to both what the NDP has put out and the Conservatives when it comes to immigration, when it comes to refugees, but overall the, the system, because it's, you know, it's all one, one type of system and, and um, <clears throat> having, uh, you know, coming back to the, the issue of the Afghan uh, Sikhs and Hindus now, you know, we're looking to ensure that those who are waiting and who have applied in India are brought here on an uh, expeditious basis. And while the LPC, sorry, Liberal Party of Canada has put that forward in their plan, uh, you know, how are they going to address that when it comes to dealing with refugees from other parts of the world and other immigrants uh, and other people who've applied? And, and I think it's important that they fix what is a bro- broken system. Second up on our voting guide, Canada and India and foreign interference. Here is, again, one of those... It's not shocking that these things made the list. These are things we regularly talk about on the podcast. Um, So we're looking at... um, The asks here are to stop Indian interference in Canada and to look properly at the history of it. So uh, India has been targeting six in Canada for a very long time. That's not a surprise at all. There's... um, And one of the real things I think... This ask is happening, uh, this ask to stop Canadian foreign interference from India and Canada is happening during an election. So I also want to have this like larger awareness of the fact that this is a time that is ripe for foreign interference. So if you're listening to this, if you have friends and family who are consuming information about the upcoming election, help them be critical about the information they consume. We know the government of India has bought domain names that sound like Canadian newspapers and has published articles in them. So you could be reading something that looks like it's coming from a Canadian source and it's actually a government of India publication. Um, So what we're saying is our key objectives in this section, Canadian politicians and political parties must stand up against Indian foreign interference and attempts to marginalize a Malayan community. And Canadian intelligence must remain vigilant against ongoing Indian attempts to interfere in Canadian affairs and the Sikh community. So this is um, the disastrous trip that Justin Trudeau took 
to India in 2018. During that trip, there was an intelligence agreement signed, a bilateral intelligence agreement in which um, the Canada and India agreed to share information with each other. And within seconds, so India was now allowed to give intelligence to Canada. And within seconds, we were put back. Uh, we were put, not back, for the first time, put on the uh, terror report, the public safety report, and all of that went down. So we know that under the current government there, and, and again, I just want to put this in context. I think um, a lot of this is going to come across as heavy criticism of the liberal government. This is because our most recent advocacy experience with the issues listed in this report have been with the federal government. And during that time, the federal government has been liberal. So this is not saying that the NDP uh, would or wouldn't have done this, because we can only speculate. But that that is why you're going to hear um, a lot of, uh, and rightfully so, criticism of the liberals, because they were in power while we were trying to advocate for these things. So the, here, here's how we find ourselves uh, with... Under the current government, more information about six moving back and forth across India and Canada, more foreign interference, more disinformation and misinformation. Uh, separately, if you're interested, WSO has released a full report called India's Disinformation Campaign Against Canadian Six. Um, but yeah, this is where we are asking for, um, for, for political parties to step in and for intelligence agreements between Canada and India to be stopped. Um, Harman, what do you think about how this would fall with the other political parties? So the NDP has raised the issue. Uh, they've put in their platform that they will deal with threats to national security, including foreign interference. They want to strengthen protection for Canadians who are victims of foreign interference. Unfortunately, they don't address what those threats may be, uh, nor do they get into the details uh, of where Canadians have been targeted. On the other side of things, the Conservative Party of Canada has a much more detailed section when it comes to foreign interference in their platform. They're very, very clear in that they will stand up against China, but at the same time, they then go on to say that they want to defend their partners in the Indo-Pacific. And in particular, they want to continue their dialogue with the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue Quad, which is U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. So then it actually goes a step further and talks about the relationship that the Conservatives want to build with uh, the Indian government. And, and I'm just going to, you know, bring this to the attention of, of our listeners um, so that they can understand, you know, what, what exactly the Conservatives are, are saying. And, and the, you know, there is the, the rhetoric of, of ensuring and moving forward with resuming free trade. But at the same time, what they do is they cite the large and vibrant multi-ethnic, multi-religious Indo community, uh, over a million strong, and talk about how Canada must repair and restore uh, the relationship with India. And the, you know, the suggestion is that the Liberals have somehow tarnished that, and while Canadian Six are actually concerned about that very relationship, not because it's been broken, but because of the agreement and the framework that you just mentioned. It's, it's stronger, I would argue, under the current government. And so there's a fear that, you know, now you've got a conservative party that is proposing to have joint security exercise with India, you know, talking about strengthening and repairing a relationship with them uh, and, and highlighting them as someone that they want to ensure that they have a, a strong partnership with. But you don't see, you know, and they, they echo some of that language, but not nearly the same uh, type of language for the other countries in those areas, namely Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. Um, there's a deliberate choice of language when they speak of this, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Indo-Canadian community. They cite this community as somehow being a monolith and a justification for wanting to repair and build a stronger relationship with India. Uh, I, I think that's something of, of particular concern if the Conservatives are not willing to acknowledge or recognize 
the problematic nature of the relationship between the two countries, especially when they're speaking out so aggressively on the interference uh, and in China's aggression. So that, to me, is a, a clear choice that they've made in policy, and especially when it comes to uh, foreign policy, that they see China as a threat, whereas they do not appreciate or understand India to be any type of threat, despite both countries having been well-documented as being uh, interfering in, in, the Canadian, in Canadian sovereignty. But the Conservatives then also talk about protecting the sovereignty of Canadians. And that's going to be part of their international foreign policy. But, and also of, you know, building relationships with countries whose democratic values uh, we share. So there's an inconsistency there. And I think it's something that we, you know, I, I would encourage listeners to question their, their conservative candidates on what is the position that can, the conservatives will take when it comes to, you know, the human rights abuses that we've all witnessed in India and how those are somehow jointly shared democratic values. I think that's such an interesting um, thing. And this is one of the reasons, I mean, you, you, we saw Aaron O'Toole use the word genocide in reference to what's happening with Uyghurs in China. And one of those things, when you're not in power, you can, and your job is to literally be the opposition, then you're going to position yourself in opposition to what, so if Justin Trudeau isn't calling it a genocide, we are going to call it a genocide. We've watched Justin Trudeau um, try and do this very, deal with this very precarious situation um, with the Michaels in China and trying to understand how to keep those Canadians safe and appease China and um, and not hurt the Huawei executive, but uphold principles of Canadian justice. And it's definitely easier to be the opposition sitting on the outside where people's lives are not in your hands and to say like, this is this and that is that. Uh, but what is going to happen if Aaron O'Toole is given a chance to lead this country? And then is he going to be so bold in his criticisms? And all of the things we don't hear the liberals say, like we don't hear the liberals say what happened to six in India was a genocide and strategically won't use that word. If they're in opposition, will we find that they are a little bit easier to work with? So not only is this a question of where do the parties land, but where are the parties right now in their ability to speak about those things? So, yeah, I think those are really important that you you flagged that the conservatives have named that they are that they don't think the liberals built a strong enough relationship with India and they want it to be stronger. Well, and let's not forget who Aaron O'Toole um, was before he was leader. Aaron O'Toole was the same one who had put forward a problematic motion that spoke um, and basically mirrored language that we've seen from the Indian government. Uh, you know, around supporting its territorial integrity and condemning, um, you know, Palestinian extremism. And, and, you know, that was quickly pulled back. However, it was, you know, Aaron O'Toole who was the one who was going to table that motion. And so to now see some language that's um, mirrored by the government of India, I don't think it should be a, a big surprise, but also something that, that should be asked of, of his candidates. Aaron O'Toole's been interesting. I keep thinking, um, like these are these are not your mom's conservatives. Um, these are uh, he has said that he is not going to reopen the debate on abortion. Um, every major political party has a plan on climate change. The conservatives basically have a carbon tax, even though they're not willing to car call it a carbon tax. Like there's all of these things where. On the surface, it seems like every party is talking about the same things, and then it takes a little bit of digging to see what they're tr what they're actually saying, and then it takes digging plus imagination to see how that would be applied if they were in power. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know there there's definitely I appreciate the fact that the conservatives are actually willing to get into the nuance on it, whereas the NDP simply just says they're going to deal with foreign inter interference without actually naming it. Um, but the Conservatives have given us an insight into what they consider foreign interference and what they don't. And they made a deliberate choice that I think Canadian Six should be alive to. Part C of our election guide. Continue to uh, pressure and opposition Quebec's Bill 21. So 
as you recall, Bill 21 was passed in Quebec, which says that folks who wear their religion on their outside, wear a dastar, wear a hijab, wear a kippah, are not allowed to do role, uh, have jobs that are funded by the government, so can't be teachers, can't be judges. The World Sikh Organization has put forward a legal challenge. One of our national board members, Amrit Kaur, has been the public face of the fight against Bill 21. There has been a really interesting reaction by federal parties, a really disappointing and interesting reaction by federal parties um, towards what's happening um, in Bill 21. So, um, Harman, do you want to set up the context for us? Why do would a federal party leader not come straight out and say, this is bad, I'm going to tell Quebec to stop doing this? I think there's a s- several concerns, but the biggest concern is an electoral concern Given that a lot, you know, the, the political parties believe that Quebec is in play, and many of them see their path to victory or relevance through Quebec. The NDP has continued to try to chase the gains that Jack Layton had made in Quebec. It proved to be a mirage and an illusion in many ways, you know, in, with the previous election. So it is extremely frustrating for many to watch the NDP continue to refuse to address the issue when it comes to Quebec's Bill 21. However, what we've seen this election cycle is that the Conservative Party of Canada is doubling down on a, pol- on a plan to really speak directly to Quebecers that they're going to treat Quebec differently than the rest of Canada, which is exactly playing into the hands of you know, Quebec and, and trying to make a, a very naked play for support from that from from that region. So in their in their in their platform, it, it, I was stunned. And, and one of the things that really motivated me to start looking more de- uh, deeply into the into the different policy uh, platforms was the was this exact reference that I saw um, from the Conservatives, which is to respect the jurisdiction of the Canadian uh, Quebec National Assembly. By neither intervening in nor providing federal funding to support legal challenges to law, uh, law 21, Bill 21. And when I saw that, this is, you know, the conservatives have made a choice. They've now essentially said that they think that Bill 21 is a valid bill that is a valid piece of legislation that should be respected. You know, this is not, uh, this is an affirmation of what is widely regarded I, I, as a completely racist bill. So it's shocking that, you know, that the conservatives have come out and, and said that, but that's the math that they've done, which is they're willing to sacrifice religious freedoms of which they claim to be the only party um, who's willing to actually stand up for those um, who are facing religious persecutions. You can find that language sprinkled throughout their platform Throughout the platform, they make reference to those fleeing uh, persecution, including those fearing religious persecution. They talk about religious freedoms. Yet, here is the the most prominent example of the limitation of religious freedoms. And the, the conservatives are willing to compromise on that simply to be able to now try to seek votes and seats in Quebec. Um, you know, it's a complete... Um, dereliction of, of their responsibility and duties to uphold the charter, which again they now are, um, you know, throwing themselves in the cover of, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms throughout the document. But I guess it doesn't apply equally to everyone, and and everyone doesn't have the same same rights and freedoms. So it's extremely disappointing. It was something that, you know, when I saw it in the document, I was completely shocked. Um, it quickly flagged for others, uh, given that it was kind of buried into the, the section on, you know, Quebec. But unsurprising, because that's the pathway that um, O'Toole's conservatives see to winning this election. Now, you know, on, 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 on the other side of things with the NDP, they talk about confronting racism, but they make no mention of, you know, what is the most obvious example of institutionalized racism in this country. Uh, you know, not once do they have a mention in their platform of 
uh, religious persecution um, of discrimination based on the grounds of religion. And so it's really disappointing that the space that the NDP could have really taken in, in, and addressed some of these issues, um, they failed to do, uh, do it. And they, they failed to explicitly come out and, and speak out on these. Um, recently, NCCM pointed out to Aaron O'Toole that, and we talked about this on the podcast, which was their um, suggestions on how to counter Islamophobia and some of the things that were relevant to the Sikh community. But so far, you know, they've been willing to, to speak out and say that the Conservatives have only actually implemented one of the many, many uh, recommendations that they have made. And I'm struggling to to see how much the NDP is actually committed to addressing you know, the, the issues that face Islamophobia, but also hate crimes. But again, coming back to Bill 21, no mention of Bill 21 in anything um, the NDP has put forward. So we're, we have political parties now that are either refusing to take a position or a political party that's saying that they're not going to take a decision. In fact, they're going to uh, state that they feel that Quebec is within their um, jurisdiction to actually bring this forward. Yet last election, we saw municipal politicians across this country stand up and pass motion after motion stating that this bill is a violation of our charter rights and freedoms and that they all stand in solidarity with the victims of this. So there's a clear divergence from the local ground level political leaders in this country who are connected to their communities and those who are in Ottawa. And that is a huge issue for our community and something that we need to be able to raise directly with candidates who are canvassing at your doors to push them to understand how will you allow racist policy and legislation in this country to stand. I'm like, um, I'm like snapping and clapping to everything you're saying over here. Um, it's a really difficult time to see a um, the star wearing man be, um, and it's such an honor to have a Sikh who's a head of a federal party and to see him need Quebec as a path to success in a federal election and to see taking a hard stance against Bill 21 as being framed as being against Quebec and risking losing those seats, um, all of the very difficult discourse that that entails. And it is it is on us to keep asking these questions and to keep saying, like, what are you going to do if it's your candidate that's in front of you, um, if it's if you have the leader in front of you to keep saying it's 2021 and if you wear this thought, a ramal, a hijab, like you can't go to Quebec and be a teacher in 2021 in Canada. And that is such overt racism. And to be complicit with that racism is very difficult. Uh, we do mention in our guide that Anime Paul does not support the laws. This is the leader of the Green Party. And a Green Party government would intervene in the support of legal challenges against Bill 21. Um but this is, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, we're going to keep going with the legal battle. We're going to um, keep, and the other, the other interesting um, sick political thing I was going to point out, because I, I already said, these are not your mom's conservatives. These are not Stephen Harper's conservatives either. And we did recently see, and I don't think we talked about this on the podcast yet, that conservative MP Tim Opal came forward and apologized for his role in um, what happened under Stephen Harper at Harper's Conservative. So if you remember, like, this is pre-Bill um, 21, we have things like uh, proposing uh, barbaric cultural practices hotline, where someone could call in and say, you know, like, this woman's wearing a hijab. And these were things that were being put forward by the conservatives. Um, these were very Islamophobic. They were racist. And at the time, they were supported by Tim Apple. And he did have a moment of uh, reflection and saying that he spoke to people and he said that he sincerely apologizes for his role. So I think my uh, question to my my MPs and, and the people who are coming door knocking and asking for my vote would be not only how, what are you going to do to end this um, systemic and overt racism in Canada, but how are you going to be in, uh, in a position where you're not going to have to come back in five years and apologize to me for not having stood up against Bill 21? 
international student needs and concerns. This is a this is a big one. Um, World Tech Organization does a lot of work to support and advocate for international students. Um, when we were and as we continue to do the work for civil liberties and for sick human rights in Canada, a lot of um, the Canadian sick population has increased as the governments have increased pathways for international students to come into Canada. International students pay two to three times the tuition. They keep the uh, heats and lights on in post-secondary institutions, in colleges and universities. And while they are being brought in for their money and to fill in gaps in our skilled labor force, the support services are not there for them. So things like healthcare, housing, mental health supports, physical health supports, visa processing visa applications, pathways to permanent residency, all of these things are not there for them. Um, so there are very serious concerns and, and a lot of this work has fallen onto the WSO and a lot of the amazing community partners we work with um, there. So we're some of the, I'm going to read these right from the report. Some of the objectives are to urge the federal government to crack down on employers and immigration consultants engaged in illegal and harmful practices, remain vigilant of exploitative practices, and ensure other levels of government and partners are also committed to a zero-tolerance policy for exploitation and collective action, encourage the federal government to review and revise the criteria of federal permanent residency programs to reflect the current economic hardships that most international students would encounter, uh, though tuition fees are not within the federal government's purview, it's important to strongly encourage the federal government to urge provincial governments and post-secondary institutions across the country to ad address this significant and growing inequity, pressure the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship to work closely with provincial ministries of citizenship and immigration to enhance existing and develop tailored settlement supports for international students, and pressure the Ministry of Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship to work diligently and quickly to address the backlog of visa applications. Some of these situations are truly horrific. Um, in my time advocating for international students, I have seen, I just, just this morning I read an article about the direct flights from India have been blocked because of COVID and international students have residency requirements, which some of them were waived during COVID. Uh, they have to be in Canada for a certain amount of time to even apply for permanent residency. And so those flights can cost five or six times the amount because you're now flying to Mexico and you're staying there for two days and then you're coming to Canada. Um, there's been so many additional expenses because of COVID. We are draining our families back in India, people who don't have the financial means, who are putting themselves into debt to send their kids here. And then sometimes something hangs on a thread. It can be a great appeal. It can be a number of days in residency, very, very small things. And, and on these basis, we're sending these kids back home to their indebted families without a pathway towards permanent residency. So this is a very um, real ask, a very important one, a very close to home one. And again, please take a look at the whole guide. Um, so Herman, if you had, uh, let's say you had all of the federal party leaders in front of you, uh, what would you be curious about in terms of their their stance on international students? Well, only one of them in their platform actually addresses international students, and that's conservatives. They speak to the fact that they want to provide a pathway to permanence for international students, which is something that I think is is important for us to note and but yet it, it goes back to an issue you you brought up which is and what the report brings up it's hard to find work immediately after you 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 finished your education and so the conservative plan for creating a pathway to per permanence is conditioned by the phrase that so long as they are prepared to work hard a contributory choice of words again which makes it very difficult for me to, you know, wrap my head around this. You know, obviously a pathway to permanence for temporary foreign workers, international students is something that is welcome. Um, having these people in Canada in limbo without, you know, a realistic, you know, um, pathway to permanence is extremely problematic. But then to condition it with as long as they're prepared to work hard. I mean, 
this, the research shows us that they're going to work hard and that they're productive members of Canada. We don't, we don't need to meet, make that a precondition for them to be able to have a pathway to permanence. So, you know, that, and that just reinforces some of the problematic practices that end up, you know, exploiting international students like we've highlighted in our report. And then the Conservatives speak to the fact that they want to continue to support settlement services for newcomers, especially for the most vulnerable. Yet, at the same breath, they say that they speak in, in, earlier in their platform that they will, they will respect the autonomy of Quebec over its immigration system, which also includes funding for supports, which Quebec, and many people may not know this, but Quebec uses has their own agreement with the government of Indi- uh, government of Canada in settlement services, and they use some of those revenues for infrastructure and not for settlement services. So in the one breath, the, the conservatives are talking about they want to continue to support settlement services, yet in the other breath, they're saying that they're going to respect Quebec's autonomy over their immigration system, where settlement service funds are being used for immigration and other purposes rather than for actual settlement services. So there's a, a conflict there that I think needs to be reconciled. And I would ask um, Aaron O'Toole, how does he reconcile those two, two things? Now, when we come to the NDP's plan, you know, they talk about welcoming uh, new Canadians, dealing in what I mentioned before with unfair, you know, the unfair lottery program, the backlogs, but they, they do get into regulating consultants. And, and that's a, uh, an important piece that we've raised when it comes to international students, which is the exploitative practices wherein consultants are also complicit. And so in having uh, greater regulation over that industry, I think, is really important to address. Uh, and something that the Liberals have talked about in the past, they've mentioned that they want to move forward with their plans on regulation. But, you know, when it comes to immigration, all the Liberals have really stated so far is that, you know, historically, they've always just raised immigration targets. And so, you know, we're the, they, they're, they're trying to champion that they're the party of immigrants. And the Conservatives have kind of taken a more nuanced approach to say, yes, that's great, but it's not all just about targets. Um, and from the, the the Liberals' perspective, I think a lot of the, the party's perspective, which is, you know, housing affordability, that would also help newcomers and so much of the other work they're doing. But we're talking about a system that, you know, systemically ignores um, a lot of people who are, who are dealing with challenges. And, and as you've highlighted, COVID has really made those more pronounced. And so we need something that's more nuanced in order to help inform people of what approaches you will take to deal with these issues that we've seen. Um, and I think Canadians, especially now given the Afghanistan crisis, have become alive to the fact that we have obligations around the world, but also to people who come to Canada who are newcomers to ensure that they're supported and that they can be successful and have equal opportunity to to opportunities and to healthcare and to education. And that's, you know, that's there in pieces. But I think, you know, my question to all the political leaders would be, what are you going to do to fix the system to ensure that we support newcomers who are here in this country, and in particular international students who have been exploited, and a group that it's not been well studied or researched. And again, we don't need commissions, we don't need more research, we know these are problems, our community partners have been raising that these are problems, but again, it's a matter of having the political will ensure that we actually address these issues and that that goes to exploitative practice that we see you know post-secondary institutions using right these are cash cows student international students pay a higher tuition they're desired because where governments have cut funding they're making up that difference but as a country we we have an obligation to ensure that they're not being exploited and yet you know we for our own benefit have put them into positions where they are being exploited Hundred percent, and I think when there are a lot of places where I would say uh, our power as citizens is more nuanced, where we have to find other ways of doing lobbying, an election, a vote. These are some of the most overt ways that we have <clears throat> big time power. We can make or break votes, and I think that issues like this. <clears throat> excuse me, international students, Sikh students, Punjabi students, students from India. 
Um, these are not on the radar. These are not issues that people are talking about every day on the radio. These are not on the top of people's minds. These are also populations that we advocate for that aren't some of them, if you're not a permanent resident, if you're here on a student visa, you're not voting. So these are not voters. So it's not going to, unless we make it a deal breaker issue and an issue we were willing to vote on, um, those folks are like the politicians aren't going to feel like they need to incorporate it into their platform or it's something that they need to move on. So definitely make noise about this one. Um, we have a lot of power as voters. We have a lot of power as sick voters. We don't necessarily vote on single issues. We don't necessarily vote with one voice. We have six across the political spectrum and people who vote any which way. But if everyone starts demanding this from every political party and saying, you know, we need to make sure that these international students are all right, um, these issues will be will come to the forefront. These folks are also hopefully going to like have very long and successful lives and are going to um, get get that pathway to immigration and citizenship. And they are going to be voters tomorrow. And don't hesitate to put that in front of someone as well. We have changed the demographics of entire cities. There are cities in Canada where we have changed the Gordora landscape, changed the Sangat, changed the community. Um, just massive influx of six. It's so beautiful. There's so many new faces and new students. These are going to be voters of tomorrow. You are not, if you are bringing in hundreds of thousands of six students, you are going to have those folks be voters tomorrow. So again, like, don't feel shy about bringing that to people's attention and saying like, yeah, if you want to be that person that's that's thinking long term, you got to do something to make sure um, that our international students are supported as well. And last but not least, six in the workplace. So there are a couple of categories here. One is COVID-19 and six in the workplace. And the second is generally at the exclusion of six in the workplace. So we're looking at things like hard hat policies. Uh, the WSO has had some pretty big wins in this category. We were able to advocate for officers in the RCMP who were removed from front lines of work because they weren't given proper PPE to uh, get back into the workforce and do the jobs they wanted to do. Um, there was a pretty big uh, win this year with a trucking port and World Sick Organization worked on the accommodation around that. And there's been a lot of conversation with hard hat exemptions in BC, and I know we continue to work on that. Um, so I'm just going to go over some of the asks here. From our guide, so with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, it is essential that alternative PPE be obtained for practicing six. So if someone has a dasad, if someone has a dhari, you know if you wear a dasad and you put your ears inside that dasad, that elastic is not going over your ears or you're going to mess up your dasad for the day. Um, or more importantly, if you have a dhari and you can't form a seal with a certain mask in front of your face, it's on your employer to make sure that you have the correct PPE. Sick frontline workers should openly air their concerns for uh, from COVID-19 to local politicians and pol political parties in power. Procurement practices must be updated by the federal government. Independent studies, research, and innovation in alternative to PPE solutions should properly accommodate six. Um, there's, we're asking to remove blanket hard hat requirements at work sites to assure that people who have the stars are accommodated. Pressure the federal government to provide accommodations and assistance to sick workers facing difficulty in their workplaces and implement structures to appropriately address the grievances of workers facing difficulty to secure accommodations and appropriate actions to address employers who fail to follow due process. So this is one that... Um, we've heard a lot of talk about um, the politicians have not shied away from talking about COVID-19, but I don't think I have heard anyone specifically talk about six COVID-19 and PPE and accommodations. What are you seeing from the different parties around these conversations? Yeah, like like you, Jaspreet, I, I have not seen anything uh, when it comes to uh, PPE or setting up for, um, you know, uh, religious minorities when it comes to workplace uh, discrimination. It's disappointing. It's something that I think is very important for us to highlight, given the fact that um, the major political parties have all been pretty silent on this issue. 
We, I mean, we hustle, six hustle. We, we work really hard. We are present in every single workplace. And I, I don't think I've seen a profession that six are afraid of doing. I mean, we're Uber drivers, truck drivers, factory workers. Um, when you look at who, I mean, I can speak for Peel and for the GTA. Uh, when you looked at what was happening in Brampton, what was happening in Peel during the pandemic, a lot of the major workplace break outbreaks and a lot of what was going on was happening in racialized communities. And this is where six are and, and they work hard. And if we are not afraid of hard, like it's literally like, it's right there. It's in the religion. It's in our DNA. It's, it's something we're so proud of. I think that that should not be further exploited and, and it should be supported in every which way possible. And so if you, um, and like always, if there's an issue with a legal accommodation, you can reach out to World Sick Organization. Um, this, this is the work that we do. And so we hear these stories quite often. And we did like a panel with doctors at the beginning of COVID to talk about how they were using and wearing PPE. Again, we can support you with all of these things. We would like to shift some of that responsibility onto the federal government because it shouldn't be left to um, third party organizations to be doing this. Canada should be making sure that Canadians are safe during a pandemic. Thanks for tuning in this week. That was everything. We are probably not going to get a chance to do another episode before the election. Um, I I am very um, just shocked at uh, like a little bit of whiplash at how quickly all of this is going. If you are trying to stay safe and you are trying to do mail-in ballots, I think those are due in like a couple weeks. So the election is pretty much over for you. Uh, so I hope some of this was informative. It helped you decide how you're going to vote. Harman not asking you which way you're voting, but what are the things that like where where do you turn to? You you read you read platforms, do you listen to debates, do you engage with your MPs? How do you make your decision? I've always um made my decision by evaluating, you know, the platforms and policy. I think that's I'm I'm in the small minority of people who may do that. Um I don't find the leaders debates particularly um useful in the sense that you know, the performance in, in a single debate doesn't tell me about what your government's going to look like. Unfortunately, the difficulty is that, you know, evaluating people on their past performances or evaluating them or voting based on promises is not necessarily also a, a very successful strategy and it creates cynicism. But for whatever reason, I continue to to keep voting. Yeah, I mean, same. I've, I've watched the debates because they're entertaining. Um uh, but for the most part, they are. They're very performative. I think people are getting better at asking questions. Politicians are getting better at sound bites. So it's kind of the the you have to dive deeper to to see what's going on there. I definitely I'm a big time. I read news. I listen to the radio a lot. Um, and it's important to me to know who is because my vote is going to be in my writing. So make sure you find out what writing you're in. How do you vote? Can I vote? Who are the people in my riding? And just start by Googling them and seeing what they're about. Um, if you want to take it one step further, check out our election guide. Try and see how every person in your riding and their party align with the things that are important to us. And be kind, be optimistic, be open-minded. Ask them these questions. Ask what they would do about a hard hat requirement on a work site. Ask what they would do about an international student who died from suicide because of their debt. Ask what they would do about Bill 29 still existing in 2021. Uh, and let us know uh, what, what answers you get. Share them with the community so we can all make the best choice. But thank you for tuning in this week. Thank you, Carmen, for co-hosting. Thank you to our amazing team of editors and people who help with our social media posts. We will see you on the other side of this election with our next episode. Wahigurji ka khalsa. Wahigurji ki fateh.